I don't think it's controversial to say that people are tired of living with the pandemic. The economic damage and mental health consequences of the pandemic, of the lockdown, of the reopening, are very real. As real as the consequences for the Canadians that have caught the virus. We look to our experts only to hear the same mantra we've been hearing for months. Keep your distance, wash your hands, wear a mask, and wait for a vaccine. Our guest this episode is concerned that our pandemic fatigue may be contributing to the disease's resurgence across Canada. Dr. Susie Hota, infectious diseases physician at University Health Network, says we need to remain vigilant and focused on controlling the pandemic to tame the second wave without resorting to extreme lockdowns. Lockdowns work, but they come at a steep cost, a lesson we're still living through. We can avoid another lockdown, Dr. Hota says, but we need to make better use of the tools we already have, distance, hygiene, and masks. She also thinks better data could help. We hear a lot about age ranges and locations of outbreaks, but we hear very little about the types of environments prone to outbreaks or how the virus travels in them. With these details in the data, public health systems could target their messaging specifically for those who need to hear it and use insights from marketing and behavioral scientists to help those messages stick. She says that we should focus on our common goal to get through the coming winter, short-term pain for long-term gain. Just before we get into the interview, I want to remind you that if you like what you hear on this series, you can leave us ratings and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is one of the trusted voices we have all turned to during the pandemic. Dr. Susie Hota is Infectious Diseases Physician and Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control for the University Health Network, and an Associate Professor, Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Toronto. Dr. Hota has over 13 years' experience in the Infection Prevention and Control Department at the University Health Network. She's a member of the Ontario Provincial Infectious Diseases Advisory Committee and has been on our TV screens and newspapers as one of the go-to analysts to help us make sense of this pandemic. As we enter the second wave of the pandemic and surpass 200 days since everyone's lives were turned upside down by the coronavirus in the middle of March, I'm pleased that Dr. Ota has taken time out of her schedule to join us. Susie, welcome to Bright Future. Thank you for having me on the show. Dr. Hota. The question on everyone's mind is, what are you looking for as we enter this second wave? I'm looking for a number of things. The first thing is we're all following the numbers very closely. What's happening in terms of the epidemiology of COVID-19? But beyond that, what's also happening with other respiratory viruses that typically circulate at this time of year? That's influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, another very common virus. These two in particular tend to cause complications, especially in the elderly and the very young, and can lead to hospitalizations. One of the questions is, are those going to continue to circulate at the levels that we've seen in the past, in the fall and the winter? And how will that coincide with the COVID-19 wave that we've already embarked on here in Canada? That's really important to me. But there are a whole bunch of other aspects as well that are important. And it really comes down to what are people doing? What is the public doing in terms of following public health recommendations for social distancing, masking, cleaning their hands and following hygiene practices? And further to that, what are public health officials doing to adapt the recommendations to what's actually occurring with transmission? How quickly can we respond to signals that show us that this environment is not safe and we need to adjust the way that we're doing things? and whether or not we allow them to stay open 
which is kind of a dramatic decision to make, but even just modify the way that we do business in certain areas. Putting that all together, it comes down to what's happening with the numbers, how are we reacting as public, but also as decision makers to those numbers, and how is that impacting on our healthcare system? Are we coping okay? Are we getting overwhelmed with patients? How well can we support those who get sick during this pandemic? What lessons do you hope we've learned from the initial phase of the lockdown, the reopening? One thing that's pretty clear is lockdowns work. They're dramatic. They take a very big toll on society in terms of our mental health and well-being and economically have a huge impact, but they do work in terms of disrupting transmission of COVID-19. And this is primarily because the virus tends to spread amongst people who are sharing spaces and are in close contact for prolonged periods of time. If we keep people to their homes or limit where they're going, it really does have a dramatic effect. But that price that I mentioned that it costs us as society is an important thing for us to watch. There are a couple of things. First of all, people suffer, but also it sends a message when we impose a lockdown that it's about self-preservation to some degree. We're talking about isolating ourselves from others. It kind of flies in the face of the other message of what we're trying to say, which is we will get through this united. We'll get through this together. We're all in this together. It does send a bit of a mixed message to society, and it's something that we have to think about. In my mind, it feels like a full lockdown, like what we've experienced earlier in the spring and also what other jurisdictions have done, really should be reserved for when we absolutely need it. If we're overwhelmed as a healthcare system and we can't care for those who are ill, if people are getting really sick and we're seeing deaths increase to a degree where we're just not comfortable with it, yeah, we have that ticket in our pocket and we can play it. But I think that we do want to see if we can manage this in less dramatic ways and in ways that will affect the public less severely. With cases rising, sometimes it feels like we're back in March. What are the models that you're looking at telling you about this second wave might actually look like? The Canadian models are helpful to look at. And I've also been looking at the Ontario modeling data as well. Both of those have been fairly recently updated. To really understand the models, you first have to look at what the data is showing right now. Currently across Canada, we're seeing acceleration of the pandemic. Transmission is going up, particularly in Ontario, Quebec, but also in Alberta and to a lesser degree in British Columbia. And a lot of that transmission is being driven by those in the age bracket of 20 to 40 years of age. Younger people compared to what we saw earlier in the pandemic, which disproportionately affected those who are elderly. We're also noticing that hospitalizations are increasing slowly, not quite at the pace that we saw previously, and deaths have been relatively stable, but we know that that will change over time. The more transmission that's happening, it will spill over to the older age groups where people tend to get more severely ill. When you think about modeling, what they're doing is they're taking the data that we have right now and saying, what trajectory are we on? What are we predicting might happen if we continue accelerating the way that we are at the moment without other interventions in place? It can be pretty scary when you think about that. In Ontario, they're talking about projected peak in mid to late October, but exceeding more than 1,000 cases per day by mid-October, which is not that far from now, if nothing's really done to mitigate the spread. And within the Canadian data that I've reviewed, it looks like they're playing with the different models that could occur. So there are four scenarios that are being considered. One, which would be sort of a best case scenario, and that best case scenario reflects a similar pattern to what we experienced in March or April. We saw more cases, we hit a peak, but the system was able to cope with it, and we came out of it okay. 
The worst case scenario, on the other hand, is more like what we saw in Italy in that first wave where it absolutely came fast and furious and overwhelmed the system. What are the differences in the key assumptions between the best and the worst case scenario? It comes down to what other factors are put into the mix that can alter the transmission dynamics. And that is how well will people keep up with physical distancing, masking, hygiene practices, and other recommendations that have come out from our public health officials through this pandemic. That is the key thing. And it sounds so simple. We've been saying it over and over again, but it's absolutely critical to how this will play out. Is the best case scenario contingent on a full economic shutdown again? It is not necessarily looking at that. What we experienced in March and April, remember, we kind of locked things down, but we hadn't fully explored masking, for example, in public and certain interventions. It's still possible for us to curb the transmission if we're using the recommendations that are currently in place better than we are now. That's what I hope we would be able to achieve. It's possible that we would need to do some targeted closures of certain types of businesses where we're seeing it's just not an environment that's been amenable to those recommendations. It can't be done that safely. That might be something that would be considered. A full lockdown is something that most people would want to avoid and comes at a price. Many organizations reacted strongly to the first wave of the pandemic. Organizations that could operate remotely moved to everyone working from home. Those that couldn't shuttered their doors and millions of Canadians were laid off as a result. Nobody, as you said, wants that kind of reaction again. If we want to avoid the most damaging economic impacts, what do we need to do as a society or as leaders of organizations to do our part in avoiding that consequence? Employers and leaders within different companies and corporations could play a big role in helping to get the message across as to what we need to do. There's still a feeling amongst a lot of younger people in particular, and this is one of the postulates as to why we're seeing more transmission in the 20 to 40 age range, that this is not going to infect them, that this is something that's been conflated in terms of the risk. Employers know their work, their employees, they know what speaks to them, they know the culture of their environment. And this could be something that would be leveraged to help with the public health messaging that, you know what, this is important. Pay attention. We stand behind it. And modeling that behavior as leaders within organizations can be really powerful. We've got to live it. We've got to walk the walk. And that hopefully will influence our employees. Social distancing is key. If we set up our workplaces in such a way that it enables that, and we set our policies to enable that, We think about our sick day policies and revise them accordingly because we don't want people to come into work sick. That's one of the easy ways for workplace outbreaks to start. If we make sure that masking policies are in place according to the bylaws and that we support them fully, that is really important. And support virtual or work from home as is amenable to your line of work. All of that's really simple and can be done. But ultimately, there are some workplaces, unfortunately, that may not be really set up in such a way that it can be safe. That's something that we have to acknowledge. And if that's the case, we do need the support of government to help get people through that financially as we await a vaccine or therapeutics to help stop the way we're dealing with the pandemic. Every organization is different. The workforce is different. Their workplaces are also unique. There's no one-size-fits-all solution to moving forward. What are the kinds of questions that you hope organizations are asking about their policies, their buildings, the staff, as we enter this fall? 
I talked a little bit about some of the policies like work from home, sick days, things like that, that help with the physical distancing that's required. But some of that's also dependent on what the physical plant is like. What's your building like, your workplace? The questions that people should be asking right now is how well has the ventilation of my building been maintained and what is it like? It's not something we typically think about in our day-to-day work, but it becomes important now when we're dealing with a pandemic that is transmitted through a respiratory route. That's one thing that can be done and should be done. What is the space like and how can it be configured as best as possible to actually enable physical distancing between the employees, the workers? What about shared spaces and how do we deal with things like lunches and breaks where people tend to gather together and want to socialize a little bit, want to support social support amongst our staff, but at the same time, we have to do that in a safe way. How do we design that? What's a workflow like so that people aren't bumping into each other, especially if you're a small building? And then how many people can we allow in the building at a time? And what does that look like in terms of people working from home versus people working in the building? Can we phase that in? Can we develop triggers for that? What do we do if somebody develops illness in the building while they're working? How do we approach that? Public health is going to be a big supporter of workplaces that are dealing with things like that. And knowing that there are resources like that available is also important. And training staff to recognize when to do what is really key. Thinking through and walking through your steps of finding a a room where you can keep somebody that's away from others is an important thing to do right now. And then cleaning and disinfection protocols. We've learned over time with this virus that surface-related transmission is probably less important than the respiratory route, but it is important still. So if somebody comes down with symptoms, making sure that you have a good protocol in place to disinfect the environment so others can't pick it up in that period of time. If there's virus on the surfaces, things like hand hygiene, making sure you have lots of alcohol-based hand rub to support cleaning hands, sinks, things like that. One of the challenges we face in this environment where there's websites or a source of information that will confirm or deny whatever you want it to. As I said in the introduction, you are one of our trusted voices who has helped us to navigate the understanding of how the disease is moving, how we are reacting. Do you think we've done a good job in Canada using common trusted sources to get the best information about the pandemic and how it's affecting communities and workforces? Yes, it's such an important thing. We're facing, along with COVID-19, an epidemic of misinformation. There is just so much out there. And everyone's an expert, so it's hard to know who truly understands the field and what direction they're coming from, because they're epidemiologists, they're basic scientists who understand properties of aerosolization and transmission from that perspective, from the physical sciences. And then there are people who understand the clinical aspect of things. And how do you put it all together so that you get the right kind of decision making? In Canada, we've done a reasonably good job of trying to turn to the experts and to credible experts to get information that helps to guide decision making. It could definitely be better. There's sometimes a confusion as to what angle people are coming from. We need to have the right complement of all the right voices at the table to make the best decisions. That's a work in progress, but we certainly have done better than some other jurisdictions. What I find is that it's actually quite variable across Canada too. There are some areas like in British Columbia where it's very clear who the spokespeople are who are coming up in front of the public and talking every day. Whereas in other parts of the country, it's a little less clear. There's a little bit of a difference in terms of the background of the people speaking. The one thing we can do is a better job of speaking to the public in terms of how people understand our messaging. I'm feeling over time that we're just missing the mark on some of that. 
we're saying the same consistent messages, but not in a way that people are taking it up well. We need to think about the best approach for communication more from the experts who do marketing and public affairs and relations as a living. We need to tap into those folks to help us with some of the messaging. Do you think we have enough information available to us to make the right decisions? If not, what are the kinds of changes to the information that we might want to see in Canada? We have some really good information, but the more granularity we can get, the better we can target our interventions to where we need to focus them. For example, we hear about the age range, the areas where cases are arising, et cetera. But what we don't really know about publicly is what types of workplaces, what kinds of environments are really driving transmission. There's a lot of conjecture behind it. People are making assumptions about why it is that the younger folks are currently being most affected. Is it because they tend to have jobs in the higher risk areas? Is it because of behaviors? There's a lot of judgment that goes behind that, and it can actually really backfire on any attempt to try and reach out to the people who need to be targeted for the messaging. I think we could use more granularity. Where are these outbreaks? How do they actually lead to transmission? And then we have to have more data on what truly drives people's behavior during a pandemic. I don't think we have heard enough about that. I'd like to hear from behavioral scientists and people who specialize in behavior change about how to best approach this problem that we face. It's going to go on for a long time. How do we best communicate to these targeted populations? Is there a trade-off in that level of information and that granularity to privacy? One of our first guests talked about the contact tracing and the privacy considerations that are inherent in that. More granularity would be very useful, but there's also the idea that do I necessarily need to know that it's in my neighborhood or it's at my neighbor's house? There are definitely trade-offs there. What are the key considerations that you see? Privacy is something we need to keep in mind, but there are ways that we can share that more granular level data without compromising privacy. Compiling data on types of workplaces or categories of workplaces, rather than identifying the specific areas, which I agree is not the right thing to do. The only time you'd want to actually identify a specific workplace is if the risk was so high that there needs to be public messaging that, for example, anyone who attended this location at this time needs to be coming forward to public health or really vigilant about symptom monitoring. We've seen those kinds of messages come out every once in a while related to public transit or certain businesses. And that's only done when you feel like there's been a, a pretty high risk exposure. But otherwise, the rest of the information can be aggregated and periodically updated. And when there are important signals, of course, public health officials do speak to them. We do hear those messages right now where we get general updates on that it would be helpful to hear a little bit more granularity as an aggregate. We had Dr. Volker Gertz, another previous guest from Vito Interback. He talked a lot about the potential for innovations in vaccines from everything we've learned. He also raised a concern. There seems to be this politicization of the scientific process. Canada has been relatively out of some of the most extreme versions of that politicization. But this feels like it has accelerated through the summer as this race to be first with the vaccine, to circumvent some of the normal processes. Do you think that the race for a vaccine and innovation is worth the trade-offs that we may see in terms of changing the scientific process or a politicization of that process? 
This is a huge area of concern for me for a few reasons. Number one, politics should never drive how we approach things from science. There is a scientific process there for a reason. It's there to protect people and to make sure that we keep the highest standard possible when we develop something like a new therapeutic or a vaccine that will be rolled out to millions of people. We absolutely need to preserve that process. But also it speaks to this growing trend of sloppiness that we're allowing as part of the pandemic response. I've heard people talk about the bar for a pandemic response just being the good enough and not really aiming for excellent, which is what we should continue to do in many facets of our response. It takes 10, 15 years to develop a vaccine normally, and we've really accelerated that pace to less than a couple of years is kind of what the target is. And part of that is driven by this becoming a competition or a race. And I find that very unusual that that was the chosen way to motivate people. There are many ways you can motivate fast change and turning it into a race or a contest doesn't help to support collaboration. It actually supports secretive research and people not collaborating. That's an issue. With the vaccine, it should never come at the expense of quality and safety. We need to make sure that whatever vaccine is rolled out is something we can stand behind. Because otherwise, we're diverting huge amounts of resources to roll out a vaccine that hasn't even been proven necessarily to be all that effective. And there could be another candidate that just isn't as far along in that process, perhaps not supported as by enough money or, or whatever it might be to get it as far along, that would have been a better investment to get out. It's really important that we truly understand how well these vaccines, and there are many of them that are under development, actually perform. And then the safety side is incredibly important. We want to make sure we're getting out a vaccine that is not going to cause harm to people. And the impact of getting an unsafe vaccine out is not just immediate, that people could develop problems and that would be awful, but it can undermine future vaccine campaigns and development. I am very mindful of what that impact could be. A lot is riding on this, and I hope that the accelerated pace that we're working at is really just taking away the unnecessary barriers to getting vaccines out there but maintaining the importance of oversight and vaccine development. That race is connected to trying to avoid a repeat of the economic damage of the layoffs. You have talked about that economic damage, but there is another side of that damage, and that is the dimension of mental health. And it seems that sometimes the choices that we've made to protect public health and our individual physical health has come with some consequences as it relates to mental health. That is starting to weigh on folks as we think about the prospect of a Canadian winter without our families again. Probably it's an unfair question, but what do you hope guides us as a society as we move into the colder months and try to figure out how do we manage that public health, that individual health, the mental health, all of those trade-offs that we're gonna have to make? It is a very difficult question. I'm not sure anyone has a great answer for it. All I can say is, if we can focus on having a common goal and recognizing that it's short-term pain for longer-term gain, that's what's going to have to help us through this. The mental health consequences of everything we've been doing through this pandemic are very real. There's also the aspect of fatigue, everyone just getting tired of the pandemic and not wanting to keep up with the measures that I started off seeing are really the critical things that are going to help us through this without it causing a lot of damage to us. People need to think about what they can do to support their own selves. So self-care, whatever that looks like, 
the Canadian winter is long and gray and cold. People are going to have to think about nesting at home and find what they're grateful to have at home and think about ways that they can find some pleasure at home and keep themselves cared for. As employers, we should be thinking about how we support our employees, recognizing it's going to be a really tough, long six months. One of the things that's been also quite tough is figuring out how you protect the social bubbles that matter to you, so your friends, your family, when the bubbles are being expanded, whether it's your kids that are back at school or people who are back at work or people needing to engage and interact, we're a week away from Thanksgiving. And I would argue that probably most families still don't know what their plans are because we look at the numbers, we're trying to do the right thing, we're trying to navigate all of it. Nobody wants their family gathering to be a, the source of an outbreak. As an infectious disease specialist, for yourself, what are the kinds of things that you use to help you make a decision? What kind of family gatherings are worth the risk, or are they? From the very beginning, I've always viewed the bubble as an abstract form of art and not so much a science. <laughs> of here's a number of people that you can limit your contact to because it's very difficult to do that. And we've got to be realistic. The concept behind it is limit quite significantly those that you're in contact with. And that's going to depend a little bit on what the size of your immediate family actually is. How many kids you have? If you have children, who lives at home with you? Do you support older generations of folks in your family at home? It's going to look very different from person to person. For me, I know that I have a bit of a different circumstance in that I have two young kids who are both in person at school and go to after school care. Myself and my husband, we both work outside of the home. We're a highly exposed family, if you want to put it that way. I know that. We do everything that we can to reduce the risk, but it puts us in a different position from a family where, say, both parents are able to work from home they're homeschooling their children, whatever it may be, or they may not have children. That's very different from what my situation is. Also, my parents and my husband's parents are older and we're aware of that and we don't want to introduce potential harm to them. I've looked at my situation and I feel like a large family gathering is definitely not in the books. And I think that the messaging I'm hearing from public health anyways coincides with that, that larger family gatherings are not going to be the way of Thanksgiving this year. I take into account first what the public health officials are telling us we should do because we need to follow that. But secondly, what are your personal circumstances and what's your risk tolerance? You have to have that discussion with your family in advance before you make a decision about who's going to come and sit at the table at Thanksgiving. I think many of us are kind of waiting to the last minute to make absolute decisions as to what Thanksgiving dinner is going to look like. Are we going to buy a small turkey or are we going to go for something different this year, like everything else this year? But those are the things I consider in my decision making. The fact that we're in a second wave of this pandemic, that we're 200 days in, that we're looking at a second wave, that's not really anything for us to be optimistic about. And we do know that the next months are going to be difficult whether they're difficult from a disease perspective or they're difficult from an individual and a family-based perspective, it, it will be difficult. We did call our podcast Bright Future for a reason. We were hoping to have a chance to talk about the optimism as we move through this. Is there something about the way we've responded to the pandemic or the lessons we've learned along the way that you hope will help us to avoid the worst this winter? 
there are some good things that have come out of this pandemic, either to help us through the winter, but also just long term. So one thing is, I feel like the pandemic has taught us as society what is important to us. Safety is really important to Canadians. It truly is. Conserving our healthcare system and being able to support those who are ill is important to Canadians. We've kind of known this for a long time, but I think this just shines a light on that and trying to support each other. There have been many examples and beautiful examples of how people have tried to support each other in their communities through the pandemic. Those are, are positive things. It's definitely exposed holes. I won't deny that. Incivility, injustices that we need to focus on for the future. We can't let that kind of thing happen again. But there are other silver linings too. I feel like we're raising a generation of children who are going to grow up understanding infection prevention and control and the importance of hand washing, for example, which is something that we continue to work on even within hospitals with our healthcare workers to reinforce that behavior. It's a part of what we do. Other things that have been positive, the fact that we've been forced to use technology in some areas quicker than we could have adopted it. It's kind of galvanized this technological boom and the way that we do work has changed. And we recognize that it is possible to work from home and be effective in some areas, maybe not in all, but that's definitely an important learning that will help us get through this. Other things that I've seen that have been positive from the pandemic is recognizing that we need to be more self-sufficient in manufacturing in the nation. The shortages that we experienced early on with personal protective equipment really opened the eyes of the government and others that we can't depend upon supply chains that are international the way that we have before. And we need to think about having our own resiliency in that domain. And then finally, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. We talked a little bit about rapid vaccine and therapeutic developments and accelerating clinical trials. There are definitely some concerns around that that I voiced, absolutely. But where there are barriers in place that could have been taken down, we've seen how we can push the limits a little bit and do things quicker while still maintaining the safety and the quality standards that are required. Lots of things for us to think about as being positive things. It may not speak to everybody, but putting it all together, I think we're going to look back at this and see how it's changed us in ways that were quite difficult for people, but also some really positive things that have come out of the pandemic. Dr. Hota, thank you so much for taking the time to share your perspective with us. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel, Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer, and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.